Jeremiah 23. We will return to our other study soon. But tonight, briefly, I want to teach you about the gift of the pastor and share with you some things about the role and the office of the pastor. Jeremiah 23, Old Testament book, beginning with verse 1. Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pastor, saith the Lord. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord, and will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries whither I have driven them, and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them, and they shall fear them no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Okay, before we pray, John, can you put that that air on 72, because I know after a while there are going to be some people looking at me like they are not pleased with me because it's somewhat chilly. But let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful again to have this opportunity to break the bread of life and to look into the scripture. Speak to all of our hearts clearly in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. There's not a day that goes by that there isn't a church somewhere here in America that is looking for a pastor or needs a pastor. Over and over again, we run into folks who are on search committees and they've got to try to figure out how to elect a pastor, how to decide what a pastor is supposed to do, what he or she is supposed to be like. And it's difficult if people don't know what a pastor is supposed to do and they're in charge of trying to determine who the pastor is going to be for the flock. Well, starting with the negatives in chapter 23, we can see what a pastor should not do. The Bible says in Jeremiah 23, verse 1, that a pastor should not destroy and scatter the sheep. So the role of the pastor should be, of course, to build up and to edify and, and to encourage. God was so displeased with what the priests were doing at this time and others that he said in verse four, I will set up shepherds over them that will feed them because that is the primary responsibility of a pastor to feed sheep, to minister to them and to help them grow in grace and in knowledge. Now, if you come with me to Ephesians four in the New Testament now, Ephesians four. We will look at this. There are different kinds of pastors. There are different ways to pastor. All of us have different gifts and different talents. All of you have known different pastors, have sat under different pastors. Some have been great. Some have been better. Some have been good. Some have been bad. Some have been worse. But the experiences that you have... Uh, very often <clears throat> affect what you think about a pastor. I asked a gentleman one time, I said, from the time you were, you, or I should say from your earliest remembrance as a child until you graduated college, how many pastors did your church have? And he told me approximately 15. Uh, that's a lot of preachers for a church to have. That means one year somebody's coming and taking the church north. Next year somebody's coming and taking them south. The next year, somebody's taking them east and then west. And so the poor little people are being pulled around like yo-yos because they don't know what direction to go in. And of course, when I've been here long enough now in these small towns to see pastors come to town and the newspapers interview them. And then they have their vision and how excited they are and what they're going to do and wonderful things that are going to take place. And then they run into that first matriarch or patriarch that's not going to budge and let that vision come to pass. And then after a little while, they call for the U-Haul and, and, and then people, people move on. But in Ephesians four, notice verse eight, the, the, the B clause of verse eight, speaking of Jesus, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. 
Verse 11 names the fivefold ministry gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Briefly, an apostle is someone that is called and appointed by God to do a particular work. Second Corinthians says their ministry is accompanied by signs and wonders. They typically are involved with the foundation, uh, the founding of churches and the establishment of leadership in local churches. A prophet is someone who God uses not only to declare the word of the Lord, but very often can predict and see things occur before they even actually occur. And so they have a spirit of prophecy. An evangelist, of course, is someone who proclaims the good news. Our example is Philip in Acts chapter 8. He went and preached in a region. Demons were cast out. Supernatural things took place. And so a pastor, then a teacher, of course, a teacher takes something that is complex and clarifies things that are hard to understand and helps people to grow in grace and in knowledge. And then a pastor, of course, uh, being the one that's the lead sheep of a church or a fellowship and teaches them so that they'll learn more and more about the word of God. The scripture tells us in verse 11 that God gave some pastors. We learn in the last sentence of verse 7 that there's a measure of the gift of Christ. And then in verse 8 in the last sentence, God gave gifts to men. The, the person who's called to be a pastor will do so because of the measure of grace that's been given to them. If a person is not called to be a pastor, they won't do it very long. They won't do it very long. And the one who does it a long time and is not called to do it will be like the ones out of Jeremiah chapter 23. They won't be successful at it because they don't have the heart that they need in order to minister to people. Uh, there are folks who have said to me, there's no way I could live my life trusting God and hoping that people in churches would be faithful in their tithes and in their offerings and then giving your life to preaching the gospel to people like that. Well, when they say that, then I already understand why they couldn't live like that, because God hadn't given them grace to live like that. But the people that have been called to ministry will put up with all kinds of things simply because God is dealing with their heart. The greater the calling, the greater the grace. And the pastor will stay there through thick and thin, through good times and bad times, ups and downs, empty houses, field houses. They will teach the word of God because they've been called to minister to those people. That's a pastor. And it cannot be otherwise. Verse 12 then tells us that the pastor is used to perfect the saints. That is not to make you perfect, but that is to mature you and bring you to a place of completion as you grow in God. One of the things that should happen as you learn God's word is things that you used to do, some things that you used to do, you no longer do them. Some things that you used to say, you'll no longer say. Maybe your character changes because of the word of God working on you. And the pastor is like somebody who's taking clay and putting it up on a wheel and he's taking a knife to it. And he's trying to mold and conform everybody to the image of Christ. But in order to do that, the pastor has to have a good conception of what Christ is like. Because if your idea of Jesus is that he is just very simply a businessman, then that's what you would try to reproduce in other people. If your idea of Jesus is that he was somebody that wore blue jeans and ate pizza, then you'll probably produce people with a modernized view of the Lord. Like I heard one uh, pastor telling me at a conference I was at a few months ago, they said down at the headquarters church of this particular denomination, they said they've now started tattoo evangelism. Okay, so now we're doing body art evangelism. We're going to just put all kinds of stuff on our neck and on our arms and all of that in order to reach people. Well, here, here's the thing. God wants us to reach people, but God wants us to reach people with the gospel. See, That's the key with the gospel. Now, you 
may have body art on you now. Don't raise your hand. And you may have it in places that are not visible. Don't raise your hand. But that's between you and the king. But in your relationship with God, you do not need to go and put a skull and crossbones on your neck. You don't need to go and put a bulldog over your chest like the Marines used to do when I was in in order to demonstrate that you are you are faithful and true blue with someone. If, if, if you're going to walk with God, just know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what the scripture says, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we we want to be careful about that. Well, <clears throat> he says that the, the church then. The saints should be involved with the work of the ministry, with the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of faith. In a local church, the pastor should be able to teach so that people will think the same way about the same topic. If someone asks you about salvation, you should be able to give an explanation of what it means to be saved. Somebody asks you, what does it mean to be baptized in water and why is it important? If you've been hanging around a church long enough and somebody's been consistently teaching you, you should be able to explain to them that the going down in the water and coming up out of the water is a demonstration of the old man being laid down and the new man coming back up. It doesn't save you. There's not enough water in Nebraska to save anybody. But if, if a person commits their heart and their soul to the Lord Jesus Christ, then as we see in Scripture, then that person now gives outward witness and testimony to their faith by baptism. So the unity of the faith. If we had a picture on the wall and we asked everyone to tell us the one outstanding feature of that picture, all of us probably would would identify something different. The reason for that is because we would probably be fixated on different objects in the picture. Now, I'm not an art critic and neither are you. But if we went to school to become an art critic, I'm sure they would teach us how to look at a picture and then note the outstanding features of that picture. And if we went through that kind of training, we'd probably all identify the same thing. So as a Christian, when we look at the word of God and we talk about the unity of the faith, we're talking about the faith that once was given to the saints and passed down to the disciples. The whole point of it is to cause us to grow in grace and in knowledge so that we won't be like children blown about by different kinds of winds and doctrines. Now, Why does Paul in verse 14 speak of children? Because children typically believe anything you tell them. Isn't it three, four, five? I used to play all kinds of tricks on these little kids in here. They were little and they didn't know better. And even in the other church, I had one little girl, she didn't know the meaning of the word modest, had no idea what the word modest meant. And so I'd walk up to her and she was four and five and I'd say, Elizabeth, are you modest? And she smiled real big and said, no, she had no idea what it meant. See, But she was very modest, but just 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 had no idea. Well, if 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 children can be easily carried about tossed to and fro, then the scripture says the Lord does not want us to be like that because there are people who are cunning and crafty and they're waiting to deceive you. They will if you're not careful. If you don't know the Bible, there'll be a lot of people that deceive you. You travel in some of these cities, stay in a hotel and turn the television on three o'clock in the morning. And there'll be a preacher on there and he'll be he'll be selling you all kinds of things. You'll have uh, holy water from the Holy Land and everything else that that you can you can have. So you don't want the different winds and doctrines to take you in 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 uh, bad directions. But let's now go to First Timothy three, and this is where I want to be for the rest, the remainder of the time. Pastors are gifts to the body of Christ. We should count ourselves blessed to have them and to know them because they are the ones that stay with the sheep. A traveling minister will be here for a season and go. An evangelist is on the road all the time traveling and preaching, but an evangelist can go out and preach 25 
of the same messages in different locations and never have to worry about anything. Whereas that pastor, he's got to prepare fresh bread every week. He's got to pray. He's got to feed himself. He's got to grow because if it's good for him to feed on, then he is going to believe it's good for the people. So Paul, then in first Timothy, he's writing to his son in the faith. I want to remind you, Paul is not married and Paul does not have any children. But Paul is giving some advice, some wise advice to a man that he has left in Ephesus to be the pastor. Notice verse one. This is a true saying. If a man desires the office of a bishop, it's a pastor. He desires a good work. Paul very often ordained elders in different villages and cities. We know that from what he did in Ephesus in the book of Acts. He had to trust people in order to leave them in these locations. And this is why he says being a pastor is a it's an office and it's a good work. There's some people don't like pastoring. There's some pastors who do not like their sheep. There's some sheep who do not like their pastors. Yeah. And if the both are working simultaneously, that makes for a bad situation. How do you get up and preach to people you don't like? How do you spend time with people you don't like and people that don't like you and don't like your family? It's hard. It's very difficult. Now, if the scripture says a man desires the office of a bishop, then this shows you this can be something that somebody wants to do. But but I'm going to. Hold on to that scripture that says, if we walk with God, he'll give us the desires of our heart. So that means that some desires that you have, God implanted those desires in your heart at certain seasons of your life. And I always use it, use it this way. There's some desires that you have when you're in your 20s and 30s that you don't have when you're in your 50s and 60s that you'll never have when you're in your 70s, 80s and 90s. When you're in your 20s, very often people are looking at establishing themselves, getting through college, getting a, a, a good family, meeting someone that they will love, be able to spend their life with. When someone is in middle age years, in their 40s, 50s, and sometimes, or I should say, going on into their 60s or so, they're usually not saying now would be a good time to become a parent. Usually not saying that. I don't think I've ever met a 65-year-old that said, I really would like to do this all over again. All right. Your desires change. And most people, when they hit those years, they're wanting their homes to be paid off. So by the time you get to your 80s and above, you do not find people who are wanting to go through the whole process that they went through back when they were in their 20s and 30s. So the desires change. Desires change. You don't want to be the baseball coach anymore when you're 75 because your kids are no longer on the baseball team. You don't necessarily want to be the one volunteering for everything that's taking place in the community because now you kind of feel like you need to move out of the way and let somebody else take some of these roles. But the desire for for ministry is a wonderful desire, and I have to believe that God puts it in the heart of some people to do it. Not everybody, but some people. I've told you before what my grandma used to say. My grandmother used to say about preachers, she would say some were called, some were sent, but a whole lot of them just got up and went, which is true. They just decided they wanted to be a preacher. I asked one pastor many, many years ago, said, how, how did you enter into the ministry? What called caused you to want to be a preacher and he said well I retired from my first job so I was just looking for a second career that would be low stress I said you want a pastor (laughs) you're looking for a job that's low stress pastoring is not the one to get involved with not at all well the scripture says that the the work is a good work I can give you as a personal testimony Right after I became a Christian as a young teenager, I immediately wanted to be a preacher. So I was not like some people who 
ran from the call, ran from God, didn't want to be involved with any of that. All I wanted to do was preach the gospel and tell folks about the king. Well, I didn't have a whole lot of people in my family that were ministers at the time. I can't even say I had a whole lot of folks in my family that were Christian. But I knew I wanted to declare the word of the Lord and and preach it around the world. And not knowing how to go around the world to preach the gospel, since my two older brothers had been in the military and my pops had been in the military, I had enough sense to know I can join the military and they'll pay me to preach the gospel around the world. So as far as I was concerned, seven years in the Marine Corps, my primary job was to preach the gospel. But what I did on the side, I was a Marine. And that's how I conducted myself. I don't think the Marine Corps liked that, but that's how, that's how I handled, handled it all. Well, it's, it's, it's a good work because you're involved with people. People that don't like to be around folks won't do well in this. You really, you really can't be an introvert and be a pastor. You got to kind of like being around folks, you know. And everybody's different. Everybody's temperament is different. Some personalities aren't always the, the, the ones that excite you the most, but that's why God calls for pastors to be patient. So notice what it says in verse 2. Here's what you need to know about pastors. Verse two, a bishop then must be blameless. Now, that's not perfect, but he should try to live a life or she should try to live a life that does not produce a reproach upon the church, upon their family or upon the name of God. We want to go out of our way to avoid certain things so that the the idea of a bad accusation won't manifest. As Paul says, shun the appearance of evil. See, it doesn't necessarily mean it's sinful, but just because it doesn't look right as a pastor, stay away from it. Because for us, all it takes is one accusation and you can destroy a man or a woman's ministry. And that's just not a preacher. That's, that's a husband or a wife, too. One accusation. The scripture says the bishop must be blameless. Why? Because if he's not blameless, that's going to detract from the authority of his message. People won't respect him. The only power that there really is in the Holy Ghost is in our ability to be led by him. And the only power that a pastor really exerts in a church is in his ability to be respected by people. Because if you don't respect someone... You won't listen to them. And you know that's true. If you've had people that have spoken to you about this or that, you know that while they're talking to you, watching their lips move, you hear the noise coming out their mouth, but you turned them off a long time ago. Or you can walk into somebody's house and they'll have a television program on. There might be a talk show host on, maybe a reporter on or a preacher. But if you don't respect the person that's speaking, you don't pay any attention to what they're saying. So for a preacher... If we lose our ability to live a holy life, then that's going to hinder people from wanting to hear what we have to say. And there's more. A bishop then should be the husband of one wife. There was polygamy in ancient times. But if somebody's going to be a pastor, just one is enough. Don't you think so? Hey, Really? I read some stories in the Old Testament. I wonder how in the world, why in the world would they want more than one wife? And then you see it on the the modern stage today in the Middle East, in Utah, in places like that, different religious groups. Why would anybody ever want two wives? And I mean, that, that can't be good. But I told you what one older lady told me. I was somehow teaching on something related to this. And I said to her, I said, Barb, I said, would you let your husband have a second wife? And she kind of thought about it. She said, can she cook and clean? (laughs) So if she cooks and cleans, she can come right on in here just long. She knows I'm the favored one in, in all of this. But a bishop should be the husband of one wife. 
Now, one wife in the singular sense, as I said, is one at a time. But then, of course, there are people who, in this day and age, um, you, you do run into preachers who are on number five or number six. Now, that detracts from the ability to minister this word to families. Especially in an area like this where it's common, not uncommon, but common to have people celebrating card showers for people that have been married for 40, 50, 60, 70 years. So when a preacher is changing spouses faster than you change cups of coffee, that's never a good thing. Because it shows the impatience and the inability to stick with someone. Not in, in the, as I was raised in the, the Pentecostal church I came up in, if, if a spouse, if, if a man who was in ministry, if somehow something happened and his marriage dissolved, then he, he, he couldn't get remarried unless that spouse died. Save for the cause of adultery. But that's how most denominations used to be 50 years ago. That's just one. That's how most of them used to be. Now, preachers will divorce their wife if she can't cook. Or she'll divorce her husband if she just she just don't like the fact that he, he doesn't come to church as often as he needs to come to church. Well, she should have known that before she married him. But in the ministry this can certainly undermine the authority and the teaching of the preacher. Now, I've only been married to that little girl over there, and tomorrow will be 20 years. So that's been wonderful. And every now and then, t- t- to bother her on my old phone, don't laugh at me, i got this old antiquated thing here. Well, on my old phone, I keep, I keep a picture of her, you know, back when she was, She's a traveling singer and all that stuff. And sometimes I'll just kind of wander around the house and just look at that and say, well, where, where, where is this little girl at? You know, well, when we first got married, you know, we were. I mean, she's she's never known what it is to be a wife and not be a pastor's wife. She's been one her entire marriage. And when we first got married, I mean, she she was doing cooking three meals a day. No was never in her vocabulary. And I mean, now when I say to her, whatever happened to that, that young lady I married in those early years, she said, you killed her. <laughs> That's what she tells me. She said, says, you killed her. And she says, she says, I'm your second wife. Well, she used to, she wouldn't tell me no at all, but now, I'll be midway through a sentence and she'll be saying no before I even get to the end of it. But the husband of one wife, but, but think of that. To, to have known us all the years that some of you have known us, I mean, I'm still as in love with her, if not more, as I was on the day that I married her. See? Nothing's changed. That, that, that relationship is strong and vibrant. The scripture says that a preacher should be vigilant. That means alert, watchful, paying attention to what's going on. He has to be because he's the shepherd of sheep. Sometimes there's false doctrine that comes in. Sometimes there are wolves in sheep's clothing that comes in. Sometimes uh, there are other things that happen, and he has to have his eyes open to see what's taking place. It's like parents have to observe who their children's friends are. Note if different attitudes are developing, sometimes bad ones, sometimes good ones. See if they're taking on new, new, uh, new habits of dress that mom and dad may not be too particularly fond of. Because I'm sure that you that raised kids in here, if your kids would have come home, your boys in particular, if they would have come home without a belt and had their pants hanging halfway down their backsides and were exposing their drawers, I think there'd probably be some men that would have had a few words with their sons in the back room. See, all of this has to do with some kind of influence that comes upon folks. The Bible says a preacher has to be vigilant. A 
Now, people laughed because I had backed the car in tonight. People were coming in saying, well, what, is this going to be a bad message? Are you trying to go for a quick getaway? <laughs> no, but, but, but there have been times when I, through the years I have ministered some pretty harsh messages. I mean, I was like a man standing up here with a shotgun, seeing rabbits and every other kind of thing coming in. And if, if it just didn't look good, I started shooting at it because I wanted to preserve our testimonies, and our love for God. I'll move on, but let me just tell you this. 20 years we've been out here. I can tell you the number of young people that have come in and out of these churches where we teach and minister. 20 years out here, we haven't had a single boy or girl have a baby out of wedlock. Okay? Now that has a lot to do with what we say and preach up here it also has a lot to do with what we say in, to people outside the pulpit. See, now that that's not the case in a lot of places. And were it to happen, we would be as loving as we could be, because love covers a multitude of sins. And while we're loving, loving them and weeping and embracing them at the same time, we'll be saying, "Don't do this again." See, that's a pastor. One time, I had a young young man who was driving around with someone in the community. And we were on our way here to church and, and I drove past them and I thought for sure in that, in their hand was a bottle in a brown paper bag and it was. So I thought it was beer. So my wife was with me. I said, hold on. I said, we got to whip this car around. So I did. I whipped that car around and I sped right up next to them, rolled that window down and I said, pull that car over right now. And I mean, see, they were terrified. And, and sure enough, I, I got over there and called him by name. I said, what is that in, in your hand? He lifted it up and, and pulled that bag down. It was orange juice. <laughs> see? see? Now, a, another pastor wouldn't have said anything. But, but you said, what are you doing? Trying to preserve their testimony as well as ours. Because how I live and what I do affects people that come out here and affects you if they know you come out here. And I've never wanted anybody to have to be able to hang their head in shame on Main Street when they say we go and listen to Pastor Darrell. Vigilant to, to pay attention to these things. The scripture says a preacher should be sober. Well, that goes right along with the first line of verse number three, not given to wine. Why would a preacher want to give up his sobriety for anyone or anything? To be sober. Sober minded. So there are substances that can be abused. And these substances lead you to being inebriated and then you can't even think and function the right way. Now somebody will say, okay, hold on now. You know, the Bible does say drink a little wine for your stomach's infirmity. And it does say that. But some of you are sick too often. See? So I know that's not right. See? So there, there is the medicinal use of that. But if, if grandma has to have a shot of whiskey two or three times a day, grandma's got more than a tummy ache, folks. You understand? But, but here's the thing. In the New Testament, post-Calvary, you don't ever find the disciples using alcohol as a substance for recreation. You know, in the Old Testament, you have a whole lot of that with the people doing that. But even in Proverbs, it said it's not for kings to drink strong wine. But then you come over into Revelation chapter one. It says you've been made kings and priests unto God. So in communion, when I lived in the Middle East, they had actual wine for the juice. They didn't use grape juice. We use grape juice simply because in the churches I pastor, I have had people who in the past were alcoholics. So the last thing I'm going to do is serve strong drink during communion. But in the Middle East, we they, they had the uh, the actual wine and the, the alcohol and so on and so forth. But I always told them, Jesus said, I won't drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you again in the kingdom. And I said, I'll just wait to drink that then with him. I'm telling you this because I want you to understand that 
that the, the role of the pastor is not to be one of the good old boys and just try to hang out with the men in the church and have a Super Bowl party and just throw a few back with them and laugh and joke and all of that. He may fit in, but the men are not going to respect him. They're not going to respect him. Now, they, they, they might say things like, well, you know, he, he's a prude or he's a little narrow-minded or something like that. But I guarantee you, if he get to drinking and starts acting carnal and saying things, telling vulgar jokes and stuff like that, it's going to be terrible. And, and people, when they start drinking, they start doing different things. They act out of character. Someone told me one time where they said, well, you know, you, you don't know how much alcohol it takes for someone to get drunk. I said, that's true. But if it's someone who doesn't drink at all, I know that one beer is going to impair them because their body's not used to it. Well, let's go on here. A pastor should be of good behavior. We want to conduct ourselves in such a way that we set an example for young men and other men in the church. And as well as for the ladies, we do not want our behavior to be bad. When when I run into preachers that tell dirty jokes, I just turn and walk away. And I have experienced that. You, you wouldn't think that pastors would be so foul, but there are a lot of them. I'm convinced are not born again, do not know God, not really interested in God, but very interested in a salary and a good lifestyle, comfortable lifestyle. But good behavior is important. If a preacher comes to your home, he ought to conduct himself like like a man of God and not uh, be like a wild bull in a china shop. His his character has everything to to do with blessing him. You know, people tell you your gifts will take you to a certain place, but your character will help keep you there. Understand? You can be exceptionally talented. And rise to the top. But if you don't have character, you won't stay there. Now look at what happens to these athletes all the time. Outstanding wide receivers. Good basketball players. Wonderful boxers. But they cannot control themselves. And the Bible says that somebody that has an unruly spirit, see, untamable, uncontrollable, they're like a city whose walls are decayed and broken down. The adversary just comes in and out and does whatever he wants to do with them, and they have no ability to stop them. So the Bible says the preacher, he should be given to hospitality, big heart, open hand, ready to love people and bless people. Bad things happen in churches all the time, and everybody doesn't know about it. And there are some things sometimes that have to be done behind the scenes without people knowing about it. I'm a, I know all of you in here, some of you I know better than I know others, which means through the years I've walked through some journeys and valleys and come over some mountains with some of you, shed a few tears with some of you, known of strengths and weaknesses, successes and failures, but the preacher has to be the kind of person who can know all of that and then get up here in the pulpit and teach the Bible without anybody out there thinking that he's picking on me. And a lot of preachers can't do that, won't do that. They get upset if something happens in a business meeting, then they'll get right up in the pulpit and deal with it and try to embarrass somebody. That's improper. That's not good behavior. That person is not hospitable to the other folks that come. When people come into the church and they don't know God, we, we want to welcome people. Don't ever believe that people, when they come to church, don't believe everybody is saved. But when they get here and they start entering into what's going on in a fellowship, then you want to be hospitable to it. We can't be judgmental to, towards people that don't know God. If they don't know God, they don't know God. That's just how it is. The, the old proverb was you have to catch a fish before you clean a fish. Yeah. So that that's the that's the principle. I, I want the worst of society to get into a message that I'm preaching because I believe there's something being taught that will change their life. Change them thoroughly and completely. The pastor should be apt to teach. 
if he can't explain the Bible, then it's going to be very difficult being happy going over and over again to the church. Because that goes back to the Old Testament where it says he needs to feed the sheep. Feed the sheep. to Teach. And the one thing people want to know is they want to know what the Bible says about this or what the Bible says about that. I get texts like that all the time. Pastor, does the Bible say this at all? Does the Bible say anything about that? People are interested. And the, the minister, if he's going to be able to teach, that means he has to be able to look into the word of God and explain it. Now, I don't know how it is for all pastors in, in this area, but I do know I've been fortunate and blessed enough all the years that I've been here that I haven't had to have a secular job. All I have done is this right here. Just shared the word of God taught the word of God and explained scripture to people. But the importance of that is connected to the fact that I have to spend a lot of time in here because I can't give you what I don't have. You can't pass along wisdom you don't possess. So I don't know anything about farming. I've been trying to get farmers for years to let me drive a grain cart. They won't let me do it. They all keep telling me, well, Pastor, we just want you to stick with what you know. You get that Bible in your hand. You talk to us about God. And when we bring our kids and grandkids out here, you talk to us about the king. And, 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 and that'll be wonderful. I say, no, that's not enough. I need to be up there on one of those big combines. I said, there's no way that's going to happen. I said, why not? It's only money. That's all it is. It's just money. They said, well, Pastor, it's, it's just not going to happen. Please leave us alone. So this is a, a, a long standing argument I've been having with different pastors about this. But I come back to this right here. I, I need to be able to do what they pay me to do. Teach. This is what we do. When we go next week to California, be ministering the word of God. That's why they invite us. We've been going to Northern California for 20 years. When we go back to the East Coast, they want us to come preach revivals. They want us to minister the word of God. This is what we do. They see the teenagers come running to the altar. They see the young people come streaming to the altar, want to give their hearts to the Lord. They see the elderly to come filing down the aisles to give their hearts to the Lord. You haven't seen anything until you see a grandmama crying in her 70s and 80s to come down there and become a Christian. That's a powerful thing to see. Yeah. So the preacher, of course, shouldn't be given to wine. He shouldn't be a striker or brawler, as it's going to say a little bit later there. It would not look good if the pastor was out here fighting people on the boulevard. It's a terrible testimony. That wouldn't be good at all. So a pastor should be patient. Now, that is not to say that pastors aren't pastors don't have the old nature and have the flesh too. preachers get mad. Their feelings get hurt. There have been a there have been a few times where I've had to go back and apologize to people before. I remember one time, I don't think Tiffany and I had been here two years. And there was a lady in one of the other churches that really was just disrespectful to my wife. And uh, I, I asked her and her hubby, come please step back here in this back room with me. And, and we went back there and that back room and I let them know that I was not pleased with the way they talked to my wife and I wasn't so tactful. I was right with what I said, but wrong in how I said it. I had to go back to people and say to them, please forgive me. And you know what I learned out of that experience? It's a whole lot easier to bite your tongue than it is to swallow your pride Oh, that's bitter. That's bitter tasting. That's swallow your pride and go back and ask somebody to forgive you. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you 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 have to do that because that's that's what it is to be a Christian. We we cannot be the kind of people that are just blowing our top and giving everybody our two cents when we're a preacher. Now, I've met some people like that get into fisticuffs. That's that's not a nice thing. I pray over and over again when Tiffany and I travel, the Lord keep us out of any situation that will bring that old nature out of us. My last name is Sutton, and 
loving people was not born and bred into our blood. My two older brothers undoubtedly were brawlers and fighters and, and it didn't fall to, you know, didn't miss me at all. And so when I became a Christian, God was constantly trying to push all of that down as a little teenager to help me know that I, I don't need to be out here getting suspended from school and out here saying stuff that I don't need to be saying. And, and little by little, the Lord has continued to work and chisel on me. Now, the good thing for you is you get to sit there and listen to me air all my dirty laundry. I wish I could sit there and listen to you air yours. Yeah, because I, I I bet I could learn some things about John on this front row here that would be a bit surprising here. Yeah. Okay. so the preacher should not be greedy of filthy lucre or covetous. He should not be someone who is pursuing money, laying awake at night, dreaming about how to get the money of the parishioners out of their pockets and into his. That is not a good pastor. In fact. The principle God gives in the scripture with regard to money and stewardship is very simply all believers tithe and then we provide offerings. That's the principle. That's the principle. But when a person is pursuing money, then, you know, the scripture says the love of money is the root of all evil. So filthy lucre has to do with money that comes into one's hands through devious means. We could say demonic means, evil means, bad means, all kinds of deception. But uh, we don't want to be covetous. Uh, pastors typically pastor people or shepherd flocks that have individuals in them who are wealthier than they are. Some will have more, some will have less, and it takes a pastor with character to be able to visit with his flock and with his sheep without becoming jealous and covetous. And then trying to figure out how he can get what they have. And if he's not careful, he'll start looking up ways to try to steal and rob. That happens. It happens. The Bible says here in verse number four and five that a person ought to be able to rule their own house and have their children in subjection. You've met PKs or preacher's kids that are not so nice. Sometimes the preacher's kids create more disturbances in school than anybody else or in the community. Yeah. It can be an embarrassment and a shame to the church. It certainly is to the mom and dad. But what this teaches is that the wisdom that is applied at home is the wisdom that will be applied at church. If I don't like my wife and she doesn't like me, then when we come to church, that's the kind of wisdom I have to use in talking to other marriage, married people. And if you have people who are like King David was that didn't want to discipline his own house, then he would never come to church and try to tell people what's right and what's wrong. The scripture says if he doesn't know how to rule his own house, how can he rule or take care of the church of God? He shouldn't be a novice. That's new to the faith. You don't ever want to put somebody in a pastorate who's new to the faith because They'll be lifted up in pride. They have this power. They have this influence. The adversary take advantage of them and produce in them something that's going to lead to their condemnation. And of course, verse seven says he should have a good reputation even amongst sinners. So people who don't even care about God or care about church, they should have respect for a pastor. I don't know what people say to you about me. I have no idea what they say behind my back. And we can go over here to John chapter 10 now. But but I do know this. Most most letters that I get in the mail of people that are listening to me, they either love me or hate me. Oh, my goodness. They love me or hate me. And thank the Lord, all the years I've been on radio, I've only got one disappointing letter. See, so that's good. See, that's good. Yeah, that's good. But we, we try to set the example for young people. And I just want to make a few comments on this also about a pastor's relationship. In John chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, it talks about he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, climbeth up some other way as a thief and a robber. God gives the shepherd access to the sheep. The sheep go out of their way to give the pastor access that they don't give to other people. 
That's why pastors very often know things about folks that other people don't know. Pastors will know secrets of people's lives that sometimes their own family members won't know. I've had a lot of kids grow up in church, become adults, and then talk to me about things they don't even share with their own parents. See, that happens. God gives access to the pastor and getting to the sheep. And then verse three, you can see how the relationship develops. It says the sheep hear his voice. Then verse five, they won't follow the voice of strangers. The sheep have been listening to a shepherd teach over and over and over again. So they get used to certain things that he or she says. They become accustomed to the way that that particular person ministers. And all of that has everything to do with the development of that relationship. So whether it's me having coffee with somebody or me spending time with somebody or me going out of my way to make a phone call or just trying to engage somebody in conversation, all of that is always a building block towards building a greater relationship. Because the stronger that relationship, the better I'll be able to pastor. The better I'll be able to pastor. And a pastor cannot properly and adequately shepherd people he or she doesn't know. Right. See, how are you going to do that? It's, Im- it's impossible because the people you don't know, they won't trust you. They'll just say, well, what what, what is this? And you, you think you think of how many preachers there are that don't want to be around their people except in church. Yeah. Now, now going back to that whole deal with, I was talking about not not giving to wine. I, I know why some pastors drink. See, the, the people. OK. <laughs> <laughs> and and I've read that verse and thought plenty of times if I pastored some of them folks I'd probably be down at the bar all the time myself you see but I also know that when you have people that are a problem there are ways to minister the word of God to help fix the problem see you don't add to the problem you try to fix the problem and the way we fix everything is through the teaching of the word of God. So God gives the pastor access. God gives the pastor relationship. The people are able to hear the voice of the pastor. They won't follow that of a stranger. Some of you have been listening to me teach so long that there are certain phrases that come out of my mouth that you probably, if I started them off, you probably could finish them off. Certain stories you've heard me tell. See, if I were to say it's a great day to be, what would you say? Alive. So you've been listening to me a long time. Okay. It's a great day to be alive if you're alive. I, I say very often when I start, start the, the services. But, but listen, don't let anybody deceive you. Uh, a good pastor is a rare commodity. When you have one that stays, that's a beautiful thing because rural churches and city churches are different kinds of entities. And there are a lot of reasons people don't stay, and there are a lot of reasons people do stay. There are benefits and disadvantages to both. But to have somebody that stays in your pulpit week after week and teaches, there's something comforting about knowing when I go away and come back, it's good to know Pastor Darrell is still there preaching and teaching the gospel. Amen. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, it's been our privilege to look into the word. We're happy because your anointing is true. It is real. It is powerful. And we know that it destroys yokes. The Bible says the truth would make us free. So God, every day as we walk with you, we want to be led by you. Help us to appreciate one another. Help me, oh God, to appreciate every person in here under the sound of my voice and help them to appreciate me and my wife and all that we do and love them. We pray, God, that we would grow in grace and in knowledge every day. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen, amen. amen.